Section One of Nyan Riley's Wit and Humor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nyan Riley's Wit and Humor, Section One, Biographical, by Bill Nye. Edgar Wilson Nye was whole-souled, big-hearted, and genial. Those who knew him lost sight of the humorist in the wholesome friend. He was born August 25, 1850, in Shirley, Piscataqui County, Maine. Poverty of resources drove the family to St. Croix Valley, Wisconsin, where they hoped to be able to live under conditions less severe. After receiving a meager schooling, he entered a lawyer's office where most of his work consisted in sweeping the office and running errands. In his idle moments, the lawyer's library was at his service. Of this crude and desultory reading, he afterward wrote, I could read the same passage today that I did yesterday, and it would seem as fresh at the second reading as it did at the first. On the following day, I could read it again, and it would seem as new and mysterious as it did on the preceding day. At the age of twenty-five, he was teaching a district school in Polk County, Wisconsin, at thirty dollars a month. In 1877, he was Justice of the Peace in Laramie. Of that experience, he wrote, It was really pathetic to see the poor little miserable booth where I sat and waited with numb fingers for business. But I did not see the pathos which clung to every cobweb and darkened the rattling casement. Possibly I did not know enough. I forgot to say the office was not a salaried one, but solely dependent upon fees. So while I was called Judge Nye, and frequently mentioned in the papers with consideration, I was out of coal half the time, and once could not mail my letters for three weeks because I did not have the necessary postage. He wrote some letters to the Cheyenne Sun, and soon made such a reputation for himself that he was able to obtain a position on the Laramie Sentinel. Of this experience he wrote, The salary was small. But the latitude was great, and I was permitted to write anything that I thought would please the people, whether it was news or not. By and by I had won every heart by my patient poverty and my delightful parsimony with regard to facts. With a hectic imagination, and an order on a restaurant which advertised in the paper, I scarcely cared through the live-long day whether school kept or not. Of the proprietor of the Sentinel, he wrote, I don't know whether he got into the penitentiary or the greenback party. At any rate, he was the wickedest man in Wyoming. Still, he was warm-hearted and generous to a fault. He was more generous to a fault than to anything else, more especially his own faults. He gave me twelve dollars a week to edit the paper, local, telegraph, selections, religious, sporting, political, fashions, and obituary. He said twelve dollars was too much, but if I would jerk the press occasionally and take care of his children, he would try to stand it. You can't mix politics and measles. I saw that I would have to draw the line at measles, so one day I drew my princely salary and quit, having acquired a style of fearless and independent journalism which I still retain. I can write up things that never occurred with a masterly and graphical hand. Then if they occur, I am grateful. If not... I bow to the inevitable and smother my chagrin. In the midst of a wrangle in politics, he was appointed postmaster of his town, and his letter of acceptance addressed to the postmaster general at Washington 
was the first of his writings to attract national attention. He said that in his opinion being selected for the office was a triumph of eternal right over error and wrong. It is one of the epics, I may say, in the nation's onward march toward political purity and perfection, he wrote. I don't know when I have noticed any stride in the affairs of state which has so thoroughly impressed me with its wisdom. Shortly after he became postmaster, he started the boomerang. The first office of the paper was over a livery stable, and Nye put up a sign instructing callers to twist the tail of the gray mule and take the elevator. He at once became famous, and was soon brought to New York at a salary that seemed fabulous to him. His place among the humorists of the world was thenceforth assured. He died February 22, 1896, at his home in North Carolina, surrounded by his family. James Whitcomb Riley, the Hoosier poet, was for many years a close personal friend of the dead humorist. When informed of Nye's death, he said, Especially favored, as for years I have been, with close personal acquaintance and association with Mr. Nye, his going away fills me with selfishness of grief that finds a mute rebuke in my every memory of him. He was unselfish wholly, and I am broken-hearted, recalling the always patient strength and gentleness of this true man, the unfailing hope and cheer and faith of his child heart, his noble and heroic life, and pure devotion to his home, his deep affections, constant dreams, plans, and realizations. I cannot doubt but that somehow, somewhere, he continues cheerily on in the unspoken exercise of these same capacities. Mr. Riley recently wrote the following sonnet. O William, in thy blithe companionship what liberty is mine, what sweet release from clamorous strife, and yet what boisterous peace. Ho, ho, it is thy fancy's fingertip that dents the dimple now and kinks the lip that scarce may sing in all this glad increase of merriment. So pray thee, do not cease to cheer me thus, for underneath the quip of thy droll sorcery the wrangling fret of all distress is still. No syllable of sorrow vexeth me, no teardrops wet my teeming lids, save those that leap to tell thee thou'st a guest that overweepeth yet, only because thou jokest over well. End of section 1 Recording by Philip Gould.